you would be helped if you have a handout, green handouts came in your bulletins. Do you want to need a copy of that? Okay, can I get someone to grab some from the back? I don't have any extras. Raise your hand if you need one. This morning I would like to begin a 13-week sermon series through the book of Colossians. And so let me invite you to turn in your Bibles there with me. My main goal for our time this morning is to give an overview of the letter as a whole so that we can understand what it meant for its original readers because we can't know what it means for us until we first know what it means for them. And that's why we take a lot of time as we go through every book with context, because context is king. We, we cannot understand the scriptures unless we understand the historical and literary and grammatical com- context. And so uh, we're going to do that a little bit this morning, and then we want to be able to see how we can apply it to our situation today. So in order to work through this book, I want to answer six questions. Six questions. Number one. Who wrote the letter? And you probably know that from your mind, but let me just show you in the text. Colossians 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. So Paul states that he's the author, and it sounds like Timothy's there with him. And some people think, well, maybe he's writing it with him. But you can see in verse 23 uh, of chapter 1, at the end of the verse, he says, of which I, Paul, was made a minister. And then chapter 4, verse 18 He says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. And so um, most scholars believe, and and you probably already uh, fall in line with this, believe that Paul is the author. Timothy happens to be there with him when he's writing. Question number two. I guess I should give you that blank there so we can make it official. There you go. All right, question number two. working for me, Evan. Sorry. When was the letter written? When was the letter written? Well, in order to understand the date of the letter, we need to understand from where it was written, and we see in verses, chapter 4, verse 3, at the end of the verse, he says, so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ for which I have also been imprisoned, and then verse 18 I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my imprisonment. Don't forget where I'm at right now. I'm in in prison. So he's writing it from prison, and so this makes sense. It it, it stays in line with what's going on in the book of Acts and his third missionary journey, um, uh, following his third missionary journey, that he's writing this in AD 60 or 61 uh, from prison, probably in Rome. Next, to whom was it written? Oh, we're we're both touching it now. All right, I'll let you do it. To whom was it written? And we can see that in chapter 1, verse 2. To the saints and faithful faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae. So, to whom was the letter, letter written? The saints at Colossae. Colossae is a city there in Asia Minor, in modern-day Turkey. The word saints there in verse 2 comes from the Greek word, which means holy ones or those who are set apart for the gospel. Colossae was a part of ancient Asia, and, um, and as I said, modern-day Turkey. It's about 100 miles east of 
of Ephesus. So Ephesus is more on one of the port cities or, or near the port there. And, and Colossae is more inland. Look at chapter 2, verse 1, because it appears that, that Paul is writing to people that he's, he's writing to a place that he's never been. Or at least he didn't start the church. Chapter 2, verse 1, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf and for those who are at Laodicea and for those who have not personally seen my face. So, sorry about that. Hope you're all awake. Sorry, Evan, can you turn that down just a little bit? I was trying to do it here, but I guess I must have been already down and I just turned it up. Sorry about that. Um, so Paul's saying, you have not seen my face and... and um, likely he did not establish the church. It seems from chapter 1, verse 7, that Epaphras was a good friend of Paul's and probably a, a person who was saved uh, under the ministry of Paul. And then Epaphras learned under Paul, became a disciple of Paul. And then he went out from Ephesus over 100 miles probably to his hometown, which was Colossae. And during Paul's third missionary journey, Epaphras actually planted this church here that Paul's writing to. Number four, what prompted Paul to write? What prompted him to write the letter? And there are two things. Uh, first is Onesimus' situation and then Epaphras's, um, Epaphras' report, I think it is. Yeah, his report. So first, Onesimus' situation. And, and this question right here, what prompted Paul to write, is always an important question to ask whenever you looked at any at any text of scripture, why was the author writing? If you can get at that point, whether it be for the whole book or for an individual section, why was he writing this? It will help you to understand what he's trying to get across. It will help you to understand what the theme is of the text. And so that's why I'm asking this question. What prompted Paul to write? Or we could say it this way. What was the occasion or the purpose of his writing? And the first thing we need to know about Colossians is that Colossians was a letter that was sent along with the letter to Philemon. And when we conclude our study of Colossians, we'll take one week to look at Philemon, I think appropriately so, because they're sent together and meant to be read among the churches in that area. And one, of, one of the reasons for writing to Philemon was that uh, his slave, Philemon's slave, Onesimus, had run away, but now he was willing to return and the reason that this is important is because apparently Philemon was a member of the Colossian church. And the church likely met in Philemon's house, according to Philemon 1-2. So Paul is saying, here's one of the reasons I want to send these two letters, the Colossians, the letters to the Colossians and to Philemon, so that Philemon can understand what's going on with Onesimus. And so while he's sending this letter to Philemon, who's a member of the Colossian church, Paul also wants to send a letter to the church as a whole, to all of you. And apparently Epaphras is the one who had made his way to Rome where Paul is imprisoned. Remember Paul, he was, he, was, um, he was in the region of Ephesus and he said, I need to go back and take this collection back to Jerusalem. So he goes back to Jerusalem and they arrest him for preaching the gospel, and he appeals to Caesar. And so he makes it all the way through shipwrecks and everything. He makes it, all the way, it make, makes it all the way to Rome, and he's imprisoned there. And it's at this time that he writes this letter, and Epaphras apparently made his way to Rome to see how Paul was doing and 
to give a report of how the Colossians were doing. Look at verse 8 of chapter 1. And part of the, this report, it seems like the main part of the report is encouraging news. Verse 8. And he, Epaphras, also informed us, myself and Timothy, of your love in the Spirit. So you, Colossians, are growing in love. And I, I love to hear about that. Epaphras told us about that. I'm encouraged by the news that I'm hearing. Apparently, Epaphras also told Paul, however, about some false teaching that was starting to take root in the church. And the reason that Epaphras had to alert Paul to the news was not because Epaphras is a tattletale and it's not because Paul was some kind of a pope and they had to know from what, what Paul thought about it. The church was at that time as it is, it ought to be today, autonomous, congregationally ruled. But apparently the doctrines that were being taught for, for Epaphras as the pastor, leader, church planter, they were too difficult for him to handle on his own and so he needed help from outside. So he's not trying to, to pick a bone with the congregation and bring Paul into the situation and say, you be our arbiter. He's simply saying, I don't know how to handle the situation. They're talking about this. It all seems good, but, but can you shed some light on it? The nature of the false teaching is not that it was some overt opposition to Christ. And that's really the danger of the best kinds, or say the worst kinds, of false teaching. The danger of those kinds, the, the kinds that work the best, are that they are covertly opposed to Christ. Not that they're overtly. They don't, they don't come in like Muslims and say, convert or be killed type of idea. But, but rather, it's, it's, it's covert. It comes under the name of Christian teaching, but then it subtly mixes in with it false teaching. And so people are maybe unsuspecting towards it, which apparently the Colossians were. And Epaphras himself had some questions about it. So specifically, what was being taught? What was this false teaching? Well, Paul, notice in chapter 1, verse 15, he begins his letter after he finishes his greetings, his prayer for them, thanksgiving. Notice in verse 15 that, that he begins to talk about Christ. He is, Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were, were created. And he goes on all the way through verse 20 to say that Christ is supreme. That there is none who is greater than Christ. And so apparently, by implication, we can understand that these false teachers were suggesting that the church could find their strength and their purpose in someone or something other than in Christ and in Christ alone. Skip down to chapter 2, verse 2, and you see this emphasized again. He says, so that your hearts may be encouraged, 2-2, that your hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God, of God's mystery, that is Christ himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And I say this, so that no one will delude you with persuasive argument. Do you see that? In whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, and knowledge of God, it's Christ why do I say this, verse 4? So that no one will delude you with persuasive argument. What's the implication? Someone is deluding them with persuasive argument. Another clue regarding their false teaching comes in verse 6 of chapter 2. 
Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. So apparently the Colossians had trusted in Jesus Christ for their initial salvation, but were seeking strength to grow in something other than Christ. That is, Christ, yes, we'll take Christ as the source of our salvation. He's the one who who is the source of, of what we believe and how we get life in God. But our sanctification, that's another means. We'll get to that here in just a second. He's saying, just as you've received Christ, initial salvation, so walk in Him. Your sanctification, not only does your initial salvation, your regeneration, your justification come in Christ, but so does your sanctification. So don't miss that point. And apparently, verse 8, people were leading them away from genuine faith. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. Again, pulling their focus off of Christ and onto something other than Christ. Elementary principles of the world, the traditions of men. Don't let it happen. Skip down to verse 18, because there you see that these false teachers were, were calling for three things, which I have listed for you there in your handout. Verse 18. Let no one keep defrauding you. So do you see that kind of ongoing idea that someone's come in and they just keep on defrauding them with regard to your uh, your no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement. There's the first one. And then the worship of angels taking his stand on visions he has seen inflated without cause by his fleshly mind. So I, I put it this way. Unnecessary rules, or we could say if you want a 25-cent word, asceticism. And then secondly, worship of angels. And thirdly, higher knowledge. So let's take this first one, unnecessary rules. That You see that at the beginning of the verse. Delighting in self-abasement, asceticism. Self-abasement or asceticism is the mindset that a person must abstain from everything that is pleasurable in the world. It's the monastic, the monks, that kind of mindset that says, I can't enjoy food or water or books or people. And so I'm going to live in a remote place and only live on the bare essentials. I have to, I have to refrain from all that is, that is pleasurable in the world. And you see examples of this in the context around verse 18. If you look at the verses before verse 18 and the verses after, you see the, what they're calling for. Do not taste, do not see, do not touch. Or, or do not do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, verse 21. Right? Don't touch any of those things. Those things are, are not good for you. At the end, verse 23, self-abasement and severe treatment of the body. So they're kind of beating their bodies into subjection by eliminating all the things that are pleasurable for it. And these false teachers apparently had deluded the Colossians into thinking that in order for them to be spiritual... In order for them to, to be spiritually mature, they had to get rid of all these things and live by a rules-based system. Adopt all these rules, kind of like the Jewish uh, traditions. Adopt all these rules, and then you will really be close to Christ. The second, or you'll be really close to God. The second is the worship of angels, and um, that's pretty obvious that somehow we need to bring into our theology a worship of angels, which the Scriptures never allows. Even when John, the apostle in Revelation, 
hears this great revelation from the angel, what does he do? He bows down before him. What does the angel say? Bring it on, right? No, he doesn't say that. He says, no, you can't worship me. Get up. Worship Christ. I'm just a messenger like you. Third is higher knowledge. He says here in verse 18, taking his stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind. In other words, these false teachers were suggesting that they had this deeper knowledge regarding spiritual things. If you want to really know the mind of God, come and talk to us. Because we, and this higher knowledge, is the real means of attaining spiritual maturity. So instead of going to the Word, instead of seeking Christ, come to us and get this higher knowledge from us. And so what Paul wants to make clear is that the key to ongoing spiritual life, if you don't get anything else, get this, the key to ongoing spiritual life is the same key to initial spiritual life. When you first believe, the same key, and it is that we must have a life rooted in Christ. And if we're going to be saved initially, we have to root our life in Christ. What has He told me I must believe and do? If we want to grow, it's the same thing. We need to have a life rooted in Christ. We don't need sourceless rules. Uh, Rules are important, but sourceless rules. We don't need to worship angels. We don't need this higher spiritual knowledge that is divorced from scriptures. Now what Paul's going to call for is is a higher wisdom that's based on the scriptures, but what we don't need is a higher knowledge that's somehow divorced from the scriptures. We need Christ. We need Christ as He has been revealed in the Word. Everything flows from knowing Christ in His Word. That's why he's going to say in chapter 3, let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. Which I think is actually another way of saying be filled with the Spirit. We'll talk about that when we get to chapter 3. So what we have is not a promotion of, by false teachers of an overt denial of faith. Turn away from Christ. They're not doing that kind of thing. Instead they're saying, here's a better way to get to God. And we have the answers for you. It's a mixture of Christian belief with pagan belief, right? And that's what makes it so appealing. That's what makes it so confusing. When the truth about life and growth in Christ is watered down with pagan philosophies of the world, we actually lose the power of the gospel. And eventually we will deny Christ. So we cannot be sucked in to this pagan teaching, this false teaching. We need to guard what we believe. Make sure that we understand the gospel. Make sure that we understand that the gospel is that Jesus Christ came to save sinners. And that we cannot grow at all apart from Christ. And so our life is rooted in Christ from beginning to the middle all the way until the end. It's rooted in Christ. So Paul's desire then, his purpose in this letter is to encourage the believers in the faith and to remind them about the source and the sustaining power in their pursuit of holiness. So how did they get their initial power? How did they grow in holiness? He wants them to be reminded of that. And you know where that comes from? I've already mentioned it before. It comes from the grace that comes from Jesus Christ alone. 
It's a gift that's given to us on the basis of God's mercy through Christ alone. That's what Paul wants them to realize. And so now that we know why Paul's writing the letter, now that we know uh, what led him to write the letter, we can actually take some application for ourselves. We can take direct principles from that, can't we? That, that we need this letter as well. That we, like the Colossians, need to be regularly reevaluating whether or not we are relying on Christ. I mean, have we drifted? Yes, we believe that Christ saved us, but have we drifted into a persuasive arguments that, that our minds have been deluded by men who, who talk with big words and, 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 and actually move us away from following Christ? And so it's helpful for us to constantly be thinking, okay, where is the source of my hope? my initial salvation, and where is the source of my strength and my ongoing salvation? It's not in asceticism or a list of rules. It's not in the worship of angels. And it's certainly not in some higher knowledge that's divorced from Scripture. So this brings us to the fifth question that we should ask of this letter, and that is, what is the point of the letter? What is the point of the letter? And, And here's how I would state the theme of the entire letter of Colossians. Christ's sufficiency secures our salvation from beginning to end. Therefore, real spiritual change happens when we fix our eyes on Him. Christ's sufficiency secures our salvation from beginning to end. Therefore, real spiritual change happens when we fix our eyes on Him. And I think the structure of this text supports this theme that I've put there for you. So let's look at the structure of the text, which is the sixth question that I'm going to ask on the back of your handout. And this is just an outline of of, um, what I I think is what Paul is driving at here. In chapters 1 and 2, Paul is saying Christ is the source of our salvation from beginning to end. Christ's sufficiency secures our salvation from beginning to end. As he says in Philippians 1, He who began a good work in you will perform it to the day of Jesus Christ. So we need Christ from beginning to the middle to the end. And then, so he starts out his letter with a greeting in verses 1 and 2, and then thanksgiving for our salvation accomplished through Christ. And then he goes on to a prayer. He prays for their spiritual growth and that they actually would grow in a higher knowledge, a higher wisdom, but not one that's divorced from the Scripture, but one that's what's grounded in the Scripture, right? That's important. And then in verses 13 through 29 of chapter 1, he talks about the source of our spiritual strength. Our strength comes from God through Christ. And then in chapter 2, he talks about the expectations that that leaves for us. That that because God has transformed us, He's made us into a new creation. Therefore, old things have been passed away, and behold, all things are, are becoming new. There's this expectation that if we have been changed, we will be changing. And if we have been changing, if we have had a seed planted, that we will grow. We will bear fruit. There's this expectation. And then in the last part of chapter 2, he talks about the enemies to spiritual change. And we already looked at some of that, right? These false teachers who were coming in with persuasive arguments and deluding people. Mixing Christian teaching with false teaching. 
So if that's true, if this theology is true, chapters 1 and 2, as Paul often does, he begins with theology, which talks about what's true about Christ and our relationship to Him. If that's true, that Christ is the source of our, our salvation from beginning to end, then chapters 3 and 4, Paul wants to say then real spiritual change happens when we fix our eyes on Him. I mean, if this is true, that, that our salvation is grounded in Christ, then do you know what we need from beginning to end? We need to, here's the application part of the text, we need to fix our eyes on Christ. We need to make sure that our eyes are focused. So, so remember the beginning of chapter 3, set your affections on things above, not on the things of this earth. Right? Um... You have been raised with Christ, chapter three, verse one. Keep seeking the things of God, or think things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on the things on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. So fix your eyes on Christ. That's the focus. When you first came to Christ, you fixed your eyes on Christ, and you said, "He is the only means by which I can come to God." Right? What Paul is saying is don't get your eyes off of Him. If you're going to change, if you're going to make it all the way to the end, you need your eyes. I need my eyes fixed on Christ. So what does that look like in life? It means putting off and putting on. Put off the sin that's in our lives, verses 5-11 through 11 of chapter 3, and then put on righteousness, verses 12-17. through 17. And then he goes on at the end of chapter 3 into chapter 4 to talk about how this affects our relationships, right? How it affects our relationships in our marriage. How it affects our relationship with, with our children. How it affects our relationship with our work. Okay, so, so he's saying that this, doesn't, this is not some ethereal thing that we just kind of leave out there. Yes, I'm going to fix my eyes on Christ. That's what my life's all going to be about. Paul's like, well, let's see what that looks like. Right? It means putting off sin and putting on righteousness. And here's what it looks like in your relationships. And then in chapter 4, he finishes by showing the fellowship com- that comes from this spiritual change. He, he lists all these people that he loves and who, whom he has met or has heard about from Epaphras. And, and he's, he, he wants to commend them for their faith and the change that has been made in them. Let's finish by looking at three principles to consider. Number one, we, like the Colossians, are in danger of being deceived. We are in danger of being deceived. Let me say that a different way. We, at Ambassador Baptist Church, are not immune to deception from false teachers. You might be thinking, wait a second, I'm a Christian, I know I'm a Christian, and I cannot be deceived. Right? My eternity is secure. And what I would say to you is what Paul said to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 10, 12. If you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. Because we are just as susceptible to to being deceived as any Christian 
since the death of Jesus Christ. If church members in the first century were immune from being deceived, right? If they were just, they had this protection, this wall, no one could possibly deceive them. If that's the way every first century church was, then why does every letter in the New Testament, except for Philemon, warn against false teachers? And remember, Philemon was actually sent with Colossians. So, effectively, every letter in the New Testament says, Watch out for the wolves. Watch out especially for the wolves in sheep's clothing. Because they will come in and they will ravage you. They will tear you apart if you go around living your spiritual life in an unsuspecting way. Oh well, I'm, I'm just kind of skipping along to eternity. No pitfalls that I have to worry about. That kind of thinking comes from the very pit of hell. It says that I can just go on through my life not concerned about any dangers around me. You know what Proverbs says? It says that the fool sees danger and just goes right on into it while the wise sees the danger and goes around. What we need to do as a church is recognize that we are not immune to deception from false teachers. And that means we constantly need to have our guard up. Right? Who's who's going to hit me next? Be ready for people to come in and attack. In fact, turn to Acts 20 so I can show you this. Acts 20. And this is where we'll finish. I'll, I'll mention two more applications. But Because a lot of times we think of the overt attack, the obvious one, right? Where we just kind of, uh, someone comes in and say, either deny the faith or die. And that's the kind of attack we expect. But what Paul is saying is, no, watch out for a different kind of attack. It's actually more dangerous and a little bit harder harder to detect. Verse 29, Acts 20, verse 29. Paul says to the Ephesian elders, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day, for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. So, the reality is there are enemies of the gospel. Some of them will come from outside. That's what he seems to be saying, that savage wolves will come in. It sounds like they're from outside, right? They're coming in. But what does he say in verse 30? But watch out from those who come up from among you and rise up in your own midst and lead disciples away after them. And so what is our job? What is my job? As the pastor, what is your job as an individual member? Verse 31, be on the alert. Be on the alert. And the antidote to the poison of false teaching that will come into our churches. The antidote is in verse 32. What is it? It's God and the word of his grace, isn't it? We are in danger of 
being deceived. And the only way that we can guard ourselves against the, the reality of false teaching that will happen in our churches is that we stay on guard. And we do so by the power of God that comes through His Word, which is rooted in Christ. Number two, nothing earth-shattering here, but, but good to be reminded of this. I think one of the other uh, principles from Colossians that we can learn is that there is no secret to spiritual change. There's no secret to spiritual change. There's no code book that you have to decode. There's no, there's no rule book that you have to adopt. You know, if I just had this list of rules, I would know exactly how to live at my job and at my home. There's no rule book. There are principles that we need to consider. There are commands that we need to obey. But there's no list of rules, exhaustive list of rules that we need to obey. So when someone comes and says, here's all the things you must do if you're going to be godly. And you say, well, where is that in the Scripture? Show me where that's where you draw that, from, from where you draw that. There are no angels that we need to worship, and then there is no higher knowledge that we need to attain apart from the Scriptures. So there is higher knowledge that we need to attain from the Scriptures, but not apart from it. We have to get some kind of degree or, or learn about some uh, esoteric or ethereal idea that's out there. The reality of spiritual change is that it comes through something very simple. It's simply gazing on Christ. Well, how am I supposed to see Christ? Well, do you know how you see Christ? Behold Him in His Word. He has left for you His Word. And that's how you see Christ. Not We don't behold a Jesus of our own making. You know, I like to think Jesus you know, would over, overlook my sin if I rejected Him my whole life. I, I like to think that when I get to heaven, He would be that kind to me. Well, that's nice what you think, but what does the Bible say? I mean, how has Jesus revealed Himself into His Word? That's how we need to know Him. Not, this is what other people say about Him. This is what, this is what my pastor growing up used to say. Well, that could be helpful, but is that based on what the Scriptures say? And that's the key. There's no secret to spiritual change. We simply need to gaze on Christ as He has revealed Himself in His Word. And so if you have a Bible, there is no secret. Simply fix your eyes on Christ. Submit yourself to Him through the power that His Spirit provides. And then thirdly, Jesus Christ is sufficient to save from beginning to end. Jesus Christ is sufficient to save from beginning to end. Our salvation can only happen because of Jesus Christ. We can only come to an initial realization of our sin and the reality of of our sin before a holy God and the fact that only Jesus can take our sin. That, that we can only come to that realization because of Christ. And we can only grow because of Christ. And we can only come to final salvation. Make it all the way till the end because of Christ. And therefore, we need to do what the Colossians needed to do, which was to fix their eyes on Christ as He has revealed Himself in His Word. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this simple reminder. Um, I don't think we talked about anything that, that was brand new to us today. Um, Lord, we're just being reminded about the, the basics of the gospel. That our salvation was initiated by you through Christ. 
our salvation is is sustained by you through Christ and our salvation will be finalized by you through Christ. And so help us now not just know that truth but to live by it, to fix our eyes on Christ and to make all of our actions in life as we get to the the more applicational part of the text in chapter 3 and following. May, may you help us to see specific ways in which we have failed you and which we need to grow and be challenged with regard to our living. Lord, help us not to doubt or despair because of the circumstances of life or because of the, the anxieties within us, but help us to know that Christ alone is enough for our salvation and, and that our eyes need to be fixed on him. Help us do that, we pray. In Jesus' name.